Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Shine, the National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marsh McLennan Agency. And today I have a new cyber celebrity, Sean O'Hare from uh, Louis Brisbois. Sean, thanks for joining today. You bet. Thank you very much, Mark. So, Sean, um, you know, thinking about your vast experience being in the U.S. Attorney's Office, how did you get to the point where you are at today uh, running the Data and Privacy Group for Louis Brisbois? You know, Mark, I was really fortunate. I, uh, when I came into the U.S. Attorney's Office, it seems like a thousand years ago now, um, I was essentially embedded with the Drug Enforcement Administration. In part, I had been doing that at a local level as an assistant district attorney, uh, but I also had, uh, I guess it was seen as maybe some, some computer skills. So I, I assisted them when early on with uh, some uh, wiretaps and helped run some uh, electronic, what some would call at the time some front-edge electronic surveillance programs of uh, numerous narcotics traffickers. And, and as a result, I was able to, you know, I was very fortunate, I guess, to have what some would call um, some career cases right out, of the, right out of the box, meaning that a career case from a U.S. Per, uh, prosecutor's perspective is typically, you know, a once-in-a-career once case. And, and, you know, for better or for worse, <laughs> I had a couple of them my first couple of years of my career, and, and I really enjoyed working with DE agents, et cetera. Um, but it really exposed me to, um, you know, I guess, the, the digital world in terms of the electronic surveillance we're doing. Uh, but at some point, after doing that for six or seven years, I was had been wired for sound, um, you know, ready to run at any time of the day or night on a, <laughs> a narcotics matter. And so that kind of set me up to uh, walk into the, I guess, the new di digital environment later on. But, but um, anyway, so I, I did um, a, a lot of their, you know, early electronic surveillance work in certain jurisdictions. Um, and at some point, it caused me to recognize that white-collar crime was going to transition to the Internet, uh, and it opened up a lot of opportunities for me. It's great to see that you're a thought leader, um, you know, very early on, and, and, you know, what you've been able to do for our industry is uh, certainly gone uh, appreciated. So, so, Sean, thank you again. Um, you know, thinking about where we stand right now in 2020, I mean, what makes you, what makes you believe the good guys can actually win this fight when we feel like we're so far behind? You know, if you, <laughs> if you don't have hope, the future can be pretty bleak. And I've always been uh, fortunate to be uh, associated with what I call, you know, really good people, people wanting to do the right thing. And, uh, you know, just like you, we have the opportunity to work with some really good people on a daily basis. Uh, for instance, our forensics partners, our law enforcement partners, uh, clients who happen to be victims of, uh, of system intrusions. They're all wanting to do, to do the right thing. And my sense is that there are enough of the, if you will, the, the good people and smart people that as difficult as it is to, to, to combat, if you will, or stay up with regard to the evolving trends that the malicious attackers have, uh, are, you know, are, are creating, if you will, in the digital environment, my, I continue to believe that there are enough good people out there, uh, smart, creative people, that we will continue to be able to, if you will, fight the good fight. And although the bad guys are doing a lot of damage along the way, um, we're able to stem the tide on a number of these things. A number of the cases are, are far smaller than they might otherwise be if we didn't have really good forensics folks uh, or clients who are being trained to step in and rapidly respond to do the right thing. So, 
as much impact as the bad guys are having, my sense is that the good guys, although you, you may not be seeing that, are uh, having an equal or, or a greater impact by trying to stem the tide of what of the damage the bad guys might be doing. Sure. You know, Sean, one of, one of the biggest issues that we're facing, it seems like our clients are facing, is ransomware. Now, when you think about what you guys are seeing, I mean, I know that you're dealing with uh, uh, tons of cases on a weekly basis. Um, getting an understanding of, you know, do you think ransomware is here to stay? And then when we think about, you know, what's going on with ransomware now, when we look at over the next 10 years, do you think that's going to continue? The trend is going to continue? Do you think there's going to be a different type of threat that's coming uh, to, to corporate America? What, what, what's, your, what's your theory in the next 10 years? You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it would have been hard for me to imagine what I'm seeing in the ransomware environment just a few years ago. You know, um, when I look back four or five years ago, when you saw kind of the drive-by ransomware attacks where it'd be essentially phishing messages without much more thought. Uh, bad guys were just trying to nab who they could, and inevitably they're going to get 2 to 5% of the individual that click on the message. And, and at some point, the bad guys may be able to extort a few people. But generally, back then, they weren't well-prepared. Uh, didn't uh, get beyond that initial phishing message, didn't uh, uh, leverage their negotiations at all. And at some point, they became more sophisticated, obviously coming in ahead of time, utilizing uh, legitimate applications and systems for malicious purposes, and deleting backups, et cetera, to really give them much more leverage. And now they've figured out how to really monetize that. And I, as long as the malicious actors are able to monetize data, um, the, the, it's ransomware or some other similar exploits going to continue. And the most dangerous exploit I think right now out there is the exfiltration extortion model, where it's not just uh, bad guys coming in using, you know, what otherwise legitimate applications like Cobalt Strike use for penetration testing or, um, or PowerShell, which is integrated into most new Windows operating systems and installed in other systems, but they're using those legitimate applications to get into systems and then transition into networks drop malware in the networks, lock things down. Uh, but the bad guys now have gone from just extorting businesses to decrypt their data to stealing the data ahead of time and then extorting people you know, to try to, to not post it. And the, the trouble is you've got, it's so dangerous right now, and we're dealing with criminals. Uh, and oftentimes businesses will you know, find that it's um, within their uh, it's their, I guess, their best interest, if you will, to pay ransom to criminals because the reputational damage it might, it might cause or uh, the possible harm it might cause to individuals if their social security numbers are exposed to the dark web. And so the good guys are unfortunately paying the bad guys. And as long as the bad guys can continue to leverage negotiations or leverage or extort money, uh, unfortunately, it's that, that sort of model is going to continue. And there's uh, you know, a lot of conversations about blame here, blame there, about you know, who's facilitated. The reality is, uh, as long as the bad guys can monetize, monetize the data, they will. And if they can't do it through extortion, they're going to do it through theft, whether it's wire fraud, fraud transfers, or redirecting direct deposit information, um, extorting W-2 images, or, or not extorting, but, but exfiltrating W-2 images out of networks or phishing them from human resources personnel. And so I think you know, it's hard to imagine where this will go but right now, the bad guys are, become, are making, for instance, even what used to be simple phishing attacks, far more sophisticated than they ever were before, um, creating tools to get into networks uh, undetected. They've got the largest, you know, largest of libraries, if you will, of antivirus products that they use to make sure their malicious code 
uh, is undetected, so they can tunnel into the corporation tomorrow on a zero-day attack. But the bad guys are so sophisticated that my thought is you're going to see ransomware. You know, it's going to increase in terms of its severity. Um, the, the ransom asks are, are now t typically seven figures. Uh, we're dealing with ransom uh, asks sometimes between 10 and 20 million on a relatively frequent basis, stuff that we would never have thought of three years ago. Um, and unfortunately, the bad guys are, are very good at programming, um, very good at creating the malicious code, uh, putting together the services it takes to really conduct an exploit against a corporation. So it's not going to stop anytime soon, and my expectation is going to get more dangerous in the years to come. Yeah, Sean, I, I, unfortunately, I agree with your comments. Um, when you think about it, though, so this isn't going anywhere, and it seems like this is a prevalent problem. Being one of the top data breach coaches in the country, what is your stance on working with law enforcement when we have one of these ransomware matters? Great question. And um, again, as a former <laughs> federal law enforcement guy, I, uh, we, we work with uh, law enforcement regularly, uh, principally with regard to system intrusions who work with the FBI. Um, now, the reality is they're not necessarily well-suited to, to assist a corporation uh, respond to an incident or uh, restore their systems. But they are there to, to uh, take the evidence and try to attribute that activity to malicious actors, which is what we try to do in, in every situation. Um, so we, you know, we regularly advise our clients that at some point it's going to be appropriate to wrap up that evidence in what I call the bow <laughs> and hand it off to the FBI so that they can actually follow that digital lead, if you will, and try to attribute it to bad actors. Uh, they have task forces set up for most of the major variants of encryption malware right now. Uh, and what they're trying to do is gather evidence from the wide variety of investigations around the country, uh, ultimately to, to, to attribute each you know, case, if you will, to, to malicious actors so they can hold them accountable, actually charge them, hopefully extradite them, and truly hold them accountable in the criminal justice system. Um, now, the reality is uh, because it's sometimes uh, in, a, in a matter, in a ransomware matter, the client systems are uh, so jammed up with and they're encrypted it's, uh, their resources are uh, consumed trying to immediately respond to it, um, contain it, and then remediate it, uh, that oftentimes we, we may not report to the FBI immediately just because we're trying to work with the resources we have at hand and get the client to the other side. But as soon as we have the resources freed up to, for instance, copy um, all the various event logs, you know, NetFlow logs and, and the, the firewall logs, et cetera, and sometimes they can be rather cumbersome. As soon as we have the resources freed up to gather that information in an organized fashion and hand it off to the FBI, we do so. And we start with an online report, and then we follow up with the task force agent and make sure they have what they need to try to attribute it to malicious activity. Um, there's been, as you know, a recent advisory uh, the last couple of weeks uh, coming with regard to the Office of Foreign Asset Control um, and, and, the, uh, and the FBI with regard to money laundering. Um, and so advising everybody to uh, report to law enforcement sooner than later, which may or may reduce liability in businesses. And it bothers me, quite frankly, that our <laughs> federal agencies would, would somehow suggest that a uh, business is going to be liable for ultimately uh, getting itself out of a, you know, basically a victim of malicious criminal uh, activity and that they're somehow going to be investigated for being that, that victim. But So what we try to do is make sure that, you know, nonetheless, the clients are compliant with all the, the uh, treachery laws and any other advisories that federal agencies may produce. But the bottom line is we're going to work closely with law enforcement anyway. We're going to do the right thing every time to try to get the client from one side to the other. Uh, but it's just really a matter of timing and resources. 
Sean, you know, uh, we're talking about now kind of post-incident, thinking now pre-incident, in your opinion, you know, what are some of the key components to having a meaningful cybersecurity program? As you know, you know, layered security is, is absolutely critical and, you know, the foundational measure for, well, the foundational um, um, project, if you will, for an information security program is really going back to your basic security controls, your critical security controls, making sure you've got everything in place that you're supposed to have in place. And we typically use the NISTA standard, National Institutes of Standards and Technology, to and their special publications. But we start there uh, to make sure that you've got all the security controls you're supposed to have. But then the next big thing, typically, we, we find incident response planning may not be what it, where it should be. And so if somebody's got a plan in place, oftentimes it's dusty and on a shelf, so we'll take it off and, and oftentimes revise it, or we will create one for them. But instant response planning is a, a critical foundation to identify your internal team that's going to respond. And it's not just going to be information technology and information security professionals. It's going to be your marketing and communications. It's going to be human resources. It's going to be your, your financial folks, your accounts payable clerks, your accounts receivable clerks, your controller, because the financial personnel are targets. The human resources folks are targets. And they need to be educated about how, as targets, they're going to, you know, uh, not only possibly be involved in some of the incidents personally, or at least with their personnel, but also in messaging to, to employees, like from a human resources perspective, or making sure we're assessing the financial um, uh, the, the liabilities from a with the financial personnel or protecting them when somebody's trying to conduct a fraudulent wire transfer. Uh, marketing communications, we want to make sure that they understand that in breach context, oftentimes less said is the better because we want to make sure that what we say is that what we sh that which we know and that we don't use any terms that are going to cause undue confusion or anxiety with people who may or may not be the victim of, a, of, a, of an attack. And so we want to get all those folks essentially as part of the internal team making sure they understand what their roles and responsibilities might be. And then we also want to make sure we identify the external responders, uh, perhaps outside counsel, your forensics firm, uh, re consumer remediation firm, those that might provide notification to consumers if, if they have an obligation to, to provide that notice. Um, the brokers, of course, the cyber insurance carriers. Um, I don't know how many times I've been on a call, you know, late at night, early in the morning, and uh, the, uh, the company is struggling to find their broker, struggling to find their carrier. We want to make sure that's dialed right into their incident response plan. So the first call is to you, to the broker, right? And, and then maybe the second call is to the carrier to make sure that if to the extent that you've got a great cyber insurance product, that you're utilizing those resources immediately. But incident response plan is a big deal. And then uh, tabletop exercises on at least an annual basis to make sure we exercise that plan. What oftentimes I find, especially in large enterprises, is that oftentimes the executives, sometimes they will not, because they're uh, maybe spanning across the country, they don't necessarily know personally some of the other executives that will be part of some sort of response, or the unit managers may not know one another. And so the tabletop exercise brings those personalities together. They get familiar with what their responsibilities may be, how they can work together. But they're also more than anything else surprised of how serious a threat really is. Um, I don't know how many times we've kind of brought human resources directors kind of kicking and screaming, if you will, to a tabletop exercise, only for them to be the ones that say, wow, this was powerful. I had no idea that threat was so real. I had no idea it was a target. And boy, by the way, it was nice to meet my colleagues over here who I you know, will look forward to working with. And so again, those are just some foundational things. There are other things, obviously, policies and procedures that should be in place, a regular employee training, that sort of thing. But foundationally, make sure your security controls are in place at an instant response plan, you're testing it. 
That's great advice, Sean. Thank you. Um, when we when we think about organizations that obviously they're astute and they 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 engage you, they 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 understand they have the exposure. What, how do you deal with organizations that feel that they don't have a cyber exposure? You know, they have a website, but they don't take any credit cards. It's still that old mindset. How do you overcome working with those individuals or those companies? You know, I, I try to go where, you know, it's just like when I was a prosecutor, go where the victim is. Uh, try to understand what their perception. And if I, if I can possibly step in their shoes, do that, and then help them visualize what it will likely be like, what it will likely cost. Sometimes I may, maybe I have a relationship with a chief financial officer of a corporation. Right. He or she is trying to educate their board or educate other executives about why they need cyber insurance, for instance. And I'll come in and maybe do a little presentation about the anatomy of a data breach, the costs of a data breach, you know, first-party costs, the th potential third-party costs, uh, fines and penalties. And when we talk about sometimes the costs of a breach, they recognize that by taking some pr uh, proactive economic action, if you will, purchasing a, a good cyber insurance product, it's going to uh, take care of that economic risk. It's going to mitigate the economic risk more so than anything else. And what I try to get them to realize is that as much as they might in invest in information security, you can only mitigate so much risk technologically. You're always going to have residual economic risk. And without putting those products in place, uh, you're going to have some serious consequences financially if, if you're not uh, more proactive. But for me, it's a matter of helping them really visualize what it will look like. And until they understand that, it's going to be hard to get them to take action. Absolutely. Changing gears a little bit, let's think about the regulatory environment. So, you know, we had GDPR uh, enacted, CCPA, BIPA, New York Shield. Clearly, the, the trend is going towards more regulation. What are your thoughts um, over the next couple of years? Do you suspect that other states will roll out similar legislation? What, what, what's, what's, um, what's the thought process there? Yes, and unfortunately, and I'm, I'm, if you will, a former regulator myself. I used to work very closely with uh, attorneys general around the country, with the FTC, that's when I was an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, and what, uh, uh, I, don't say, I don't know if I would say alarms me, but really, what really concerns me is the, if you will, the monetization <laughs> of data privacy and information security by attorneys general's offices around the country. And as an example, for instance, uh, in many states, as, as you know, there, all 50 states have what we call data breach notification statutes. Uh, and under, in a number of states, if you notify, say, one consumer in that state of a data security incident, you're also required to notify the attorney general or some other regulatory official. In some other states, there's maybe a monetary threat or a numerical threshold, sort of like in California, if you notify more than 500 California residents, you also have to notify the California Attorney General. But the bottom line is, in some states, once the Attorney General gets that, that individual notice, then what they will do is file a, uh, provide a stock letter back to the company saying, oh, by the way, thank you very much for, <laughs> for complying with our data breach notification statute, but could you please tell me about the policies and procedures you had in place six months prior to the incident <clears throat> to uh, administratively, physically, and, and technically protect consumer data? And could you also provide more uh, granular information about what you did during the incident? And then what remediation have you done afterward to make you sure that uh, consumer information is more secure? And what they're looking for uh, in the majority of the states that have what we call information security standards, and it's another statute requiring businesses in those jurisdictions to have certain information security programs in place, they're looking for any deficiency in their information security programs 
because, again, you've, you've already complained with the database notification statute, but they've taken the opportunity to inquire about your information security program. And when you respond to that, if they find any deficit, then they may actually take an enforcement action under the unfair trade practices statute, alleging perhaps you didn't spend as much money as your peers, and therefore you've got an unfair advantage, or you didn't spend as much money as you should have to protect consumer information, so therefore you're engaging in deceptive practices. And what it is, people don't realize, is that many of their units are funded by assessments on business. Their operations budget is actually funded <laughs> by the assessments they take in for businesses. And so uh, it's a danger, it's, and it's, it's, you know, as some of the uh, um, attorneys general offices have become very efficient at doing so, others have learned that, in fact, it may benefit them to do the same thing. And so you have more attorneys general across the country paying attention to this process, participating in monthly conference calls, and then inquiring about whether or not you, you know, companies have a, a full-fledged information security program in place. Now, the reality is, yes, we want to make sure we've got uh, consumer information being taken care of and, and, and secured, but unfortunately, many I, what I find is many of the personnel in these units don't necessarily understand the information security, and they don't necessarily understand the challenges that small and medium market businesses in particular really have in implementing a robust program while actually conducting businesses. They're trying to do everything they can, but inevitably, given the nature of information security and the, and the, the nature of malicious activity in the evolving digital environment, it's just very difficult to always you know, uh, comply directly with the, the, the letters of, of their statutes um, in any event. So that's a big concern I have about just the monetization of that process. With regard to privacy regulation, there's no question that other states will adopt something similar to what the California Consumer Privacy Act has in place and that, unfortunately, it's, it's going to be um, monetization through some of the regulators, but also, uh, to the extent that it's a private right of action, it opens up that tremendous, you know, what I call the, the, you know, the dangerous area of third-party liability as well. Thanks, Sean. So, Sean, you know, you guys take in dozens of new cases every week. When you see organizations that have cyber insurance versus organizations that don't have cyber insurance, how different are those matters when they come in through the door? What are some of the perks of having the program versus some of the perks of, of, of going to you without, without a, a cyber insurance carrier? As you know, cyber insurance carriers have vetted their, whether it be their outside counsel or their forensics firms or consumer remediation firms. And, and sometimes they, 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 they will have, what, for instance, we used to have hotlines for a number of cyber insurance carriers. And so they got a process set up to serve the insurers. If you've got a if you've got a data security incident, you've got a hotline you can call. You can have resources that can immediately be deployed. And to the extent that those are they're they're got brokers who educate them about that, and their incident response plans are in place as perhaps a result, they're getting immediate attention. They're getting immediately deployment of the resources they need to get from one side to the other. And in the process, the rapid response is absolutely critical and it's going to limit the impact on the business. It's going to certainly limit the expense and, and the, the size of the claim. On the other hand, for those companies that don't have cyber insurance, oftentimes they struggle to figure out who they should call and how to get from one side to the other because they really haven't thought through that process, in part because they perhaps maybe they don't have a broker who's educated them about the threats. And as a consequence, then maybe they haven't put a plan in place to deal with it. And so in the middle of the night or the middle of the morning when all of a sudden their systems are locked down, they're struggling to figure out who to call. And so oftentimes they will call maybe a local resource that really doesn't understand how to respond to something of, of their scale. And as they start to, uh, to reach out to others, it can take hours, 
and every hour in a ransomware attack can result in an extra days you know, downtime. And so it's primarily the, the inability to rapidly respond or to find the right resources to help them get from one side to the other. So Sean, I mean, your experience is vast. Um, I think this question may not be necessarily appropriate for you, but you know, what separates you from the rest of the, the other breach coaches in, in, in your field? I mean, I, I mean, I guess me, me personally, I, I, I just feel very fortunate. I've had a, a wonderful career. Um, you know, I, in terms of my, me personally, um, you know, I had, I, was, I served as 15 years as a cyber attorney for uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, where I worked system intrusions with the FBI and Secret Service, and I was very fortunate during that period of time, again for better or for worse, to see a lot of that malicious activity. And because of the regional, national, and some of the international cases I handled. I was asked to train federal prosecutors and federal agents about how to investigate complex white collar and high tech crime and, and how to attribute to, you know, attribute to uh, malicious activity to certain types of digital evidence. Um, and because of that, the State Department then asked me to train foreign investigators in an anti-terrorism context about how to trace digital evidence back to terrorist activity. So I spent a little time in Southeast Asia and the Middle East doing that. And all those experiences, quite frankly, when I think back, again, I feel very fortunate and very humble to have had that opportunity. Uh, there's just nothing that you can trade for that. And so all those insights I'm able to take now and provide to our clients and to our team. Uh, when I saw during those 15 years you're responding sometimes to corporate breaches with the FBI, I found information technology personnel who truly wanted to do the right thing, but for whatever reason they were lacking the insight because they hadn't dealt with it before. And over that course of those years, I found some tools that I thought would work well in the private sector. So when I moved into the private sector, I created um, uh, tools that I'll call tools, they're uh, 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 products, if you will, to deal with information security control assessments, uh, instant response planning, even tabletop exercises and policies and procedures and all those things that I know the private sector needs. And so I was able to, to deploy them. I've also been very fortunate um, in, with, with a firm who has provided me the resources to uh, build the team that I've got. I'm, it, it, I, Sean can't, <laughs> Sean could never do this himself. I'm surrounded by some wonderful people. I'm so fortunate to have the team I have. Uh, folks from uh, a number of different walks of life spread all across the country. Very, very smart. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, if, if I were to apply for, for a job on my team, I may not qualify. I mean, my, some of our newest associates, I've got these rock stars who are young attorneys who've got masters in cybersecurity engineering, masters in digital forensics, who are just off the charts, smart and nice, and exercise tremendous discretionary judgment. So, you know what differentiates me, or perhaps our team, is that you know my experience combined with the experience of others. Um, we've got a what I call the attitude of contribution. Um, what I'm looking for on my teammates, although everybody has is either privacy experience or information security experience or credentials for both. Um, and they've all got great academic credentials and they're all very smart, but what I'm always looking for are the interper interpersonal skills. It's stuff that I can't teach. And when I find somebody with that unique combination, I want to do my best <laughs> to put them on my team to make sure they work well together, they provide client excellence, you know, clients excellent customer service. But as part of that too, they bought into my system where everybody's going to take on-call rotations. You know, I brought, I used to have, to, uh, you, know, you know, the top secret clearance, and I was on call most of my adult life, and so I brought that culture into our team as well. So, again, what differentiates us? You know, my background, uh, the background, similar backgrounds of a couple other partners in my group, uh, 
one of whom is a, a former assistant attorney general for a state system for 10 years, and another eight years in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Another colleague was a cyber attorney at DOJ as well. You've got folks who used to work in the tech industry, um, complex litigation, so they understand third-party liability. And all those things come together to, you know, folks that are willing to literally be on 24-7 rotations to serve our clients. Uh, we've, we want, we take pride in being very responsive, and that's, you know, our mantra is to always do the right thing and to really be the most responsive law firm in the country and, and, and the world, if you will. It sounds a little grandiose. But we also, we um, uh, want to be a thought leader. We've got a blog it's called Digital Insights. We have interactive webs, uh, maps on our websites of all the data breach notification statutes and the information security standards. Uh, we publish a book every six months, a new version every six months, uh, dealing with data breach notification statutes and cyber liability to make sure that our clients get that information and they're really on the front edge of the law as, as we want them to be and get the right advice. So all those things come together, I guess, you know, and the, the relationships we have with law enforcement, the relationships we have with cyber insurance carriers or on most of the major panels, you know, panels for, you know, 40, more than 40 now cyber insurance carriers. And so we've got all those resources and a, backed by a full-service law firm to provide what we need to for our clients. So I know I <laughs> sounds like I'm on a pedestal, but but that's really what differentiates differentiates me differentiates me I think as well as the team. If that makes sense. Now, Sean, it does. I mean, you clearly have a, a great team behind you, and you know we've some of the work that we've done together. I can personally attest for that. Um, let me last question for you. You know, you, you've had such a, a vast career, both public, private, uh, attorney general, running one of the largest data breach uh, uh, groups uh, uh, in the country. What would you like to be remembered for? <laughs> you know, quite frankly, our mantra is to uh, do, you know, you're always going to do the right thing. You know, when, uh, when we've got the most complex problems facing us, and you know, I, I, I went on vacation once. <laughs> I hadn't taken one for many years, and, and mm -hmm. I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I, my, my team, what's going to happen? I, and, I, and I realized, wait a second, I've got an awesome team. And my, my advice to them and my absence, because I'm going to completely unplug. Nobody's going to be able to get a hold of me for a week. I'm going to spend it with my family that I haven't seen for a while, was, you know, you're going to have some complex issues to deal with this week. And when you do, it's always about doing the next right thing. And at some point when you focus on trying to do the next right thing, you're going to find it. It may not become apparent initially, but when you think about what's the next right thing for my client, what's the next right thing for perhaps the victims, the other victims, the consumers or the carrier, at some point you're going to come to that, that resolution that you know it is really not just the next right thing, but it's perhaps the most effective, most efficient way to solve that problem. So I want, you know, if anything, I guess I'd want to be remembered for doing the next right thing, hopefully, you know, being considerate, <laughs> respectful and, and compassionate to those that I work with. Sean, I mean, this has been a great interview. I really want to thank you for coming on the show and chatting cyber with us. Um, wish all our audience have a great day. Thanks, Sean.